Chapter 16 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 True Love. If anyone had told me so lately as last week that Sam and myself would be sworn allies upon matters of the deepest interest within fifty years of such a prophecy, I should have considered him as great a liar as the greatest statesmen in the present period prove themselves daily out of their own mouths, although I had not then the benefit of knowing how the most righteous of mankind deceives us, I knew well enough that the world is full of rogues, for no man can visit Covent Garden twice without having that conviction forced upon him, and Sam Henderson's quiet grins at my greenness naturally led me to ponder such a little upon the possibility of his trafficking upon it. However, I'm glad to say, and still hold to it, that neither then, nor even in my later troubles, which were infinitely deeper than any yet recounted, did I ever pass into the bitter shadow through which all men are beheld as liars. The difficulty was to know what to do next. If I did nothing, which was the easiest thing to do, and a course to which my bashfulness and ignorance inclined me, the foulest of all foul wrongs, my triumph, the sweetest and most lovable of all the fair beings who are sent among the coarser lot to renew their faith in goodness, might even by virtue of her own excellence become a sacrifice to villainy. I knew that my darling had that strong sense of justice without which pure gentleness is a broken reed, and I felt that she also had a keen perception of the good and the bad, as they appear in men. But alas, I knew also that she loved her father before any one on earth, and almost worshipped him, which he deserved for his character at large, but not so entirely for his conduct to herself. He was always kind and loving to her when the state of things permitted it, but the bent of his nature was towards peace, and in a strange home which had swallowed him there was no peace, either by day or night, if he even dared to show that he loved his own child." The blackest falsehoods were told about her, and the lowest devices perpetually plied, as I discovered later on, to estrange the father from the daughter, and rob them of their faith in one another. But this part of her story I mean to pass over with as light a step as possible, for to dwell on such matters stirs the lower part of nature, and angers us without the enlargement of good wrath. We must try to forgive when we cannot forget, and endeavor not to hope, whenever faith allows us, that the cruel and inhuman may be basted with red pepper for more than a millennium of the time to come. But as yet I had none of this clemency in me. Youth has a stronger and far more militant sense of justice than middle age. I was fired continually with indignation, and often clenched my fists, and was eager to rush at a wall with no door in it, when my uncle's tale and Sam's confirmation came into my head like a whirlwind. "'What a fool I am! What a helpless idiot!' I kept on muttering to myself. "'The murder will be done before I move!' I could see no pretext, no prospect whatever, no possibility of interference, and my uncle, to whom I confided my misery, could only shake his head and say, "'Very bad job, my boy!' You must try to make the best of it. Probably it would have made the worst of me and left me to die an old bachelor if it had not been for a little chance such as no one would think much of. Time was drawing on without a sign of sunshine in it. 
when to pick up a very small crumb of comfort and recall the happiest day I had ever known yet, I went to my cupboard and pulled out a simple sketch in watercolors, which I had made of the stricken pear tree after someone had made of it the luckiest tree that ever died. She had not finished her work of art, partly through sweet talk with me, and I hoped to surprise her and compare our portraits when she should come to complete her drawing. Now as I glanced and sighed and gazed and put in a little touch with listless hands, my good genius stood behind me in the form of a little old woman, holding in one hand a bucket and in the other a scrubbing brush. "'Lord, how beautiful ye have done!' Tabby Tapscott cried, as if she would like to have a turn at it with her reeking brush. "'I can see every crinkle crankum of the leaveses, and a girt bumbledum good a sniffin. Her couldn't do havin so natural as thisy, if her was to come a dozen times for kissy-kissy talk-like. Think I didn't clap eyes upon ye both, good as a ply it were, and the both of ye fancying nobody nigh.' "'Lord, I never see nor de more moosin'. "'Then all I can say is you ought to have that bucket of slops thrown over you. "'What business of yours, you inquisitive old creature? "'That be vain matters, after all, as I do, "'de vetchin here for you to car on with. Oh, "'I could tell ye some it now, if so be I was minded to, "'but I reckon ye would go to draw bucket over Tabby.' This renewed my courtesy at once, for I had great faith in Tabby's devices, and after some coying and the touch of a crooked sixpence, she told me her plan, which was simplicity itself, so that I wondered at my own dullness. I was to find out where Captain Fairthorne lived, which could be done with the greatest ease, and then to call and make a point of seeing him on the plea of presenting him with a perfect copy, such as his daughter had no time to finish. Who could tell that good luck might not afford me a glimpse at, or even a few words with, the one who was never absent from my mind? And, supposing that there were no such bliss as that, at least I could get some tidings of her, and possibly find a chance of doing something more. Be it as it might, I could make things no worse, and anything was better than this horrible suspense. I consulted my uncle about this little scheme, and he readily fell in with it, for he could not bear to see me going about my work as if my heart were not in it, and searching the papers in dread of bad news every morning. He proposed that I should go that very night in the fruit van with Selsey Bill, and the thief boy, that is to say the boy who kept watch against thieves, of whom there are scores in the market. When I found my way towards the middle of the day to that wild wield as it then was of London, which is now a camp of punch-and-judy boxes strung with balconies, it took me some minutes to become convinced that I was not in a hop-ground turned upside down. Some mighty contractor was at work in the breadth and depth of chaos, and countless volcanoes of plied clay, which none but a demon could have made to burn, were uttering horizontal fumes, not at all like honest smoke and texture, but tenfold worse to cope with, some thousands of brawny navies running on planks, at the head pirate's order, with skeleton barrows before them, and contrived, with the aid of ten thousand tin pots, to keep their throats clear and their insides going. Not one of them would stop to tell me where I was. All gave a nod and went on barrowing. Perhaps they were under conditions, such as occur to most of us in the barrow drive of life, when to pause for a moment is to topple over 
After shouting in vain to these night-capped fellows, I saw through the blue mist of drifting poison a young fellow, perhaps about twenty-one, who seemed to be the clerk of the works, or something, and I felt myself fit to patronize him, being four or five years his elder, and at least to that amount his bigger, but for his better he would not have me, and snapped in such a style that I seemed to belong almost to a past generation. "'Fairthorne,' he said, "'yes, I may have heard of him. Elderly gent, wears goggles, and goes in for thunderbolts. Don't hang out here, stops business. Three turns to the left, and ask the old apple woman.' I was much inclined to increase his acquaintance with apples by giving him one to his eye, external and not a treasure, but before I could even return his contempt he was gone, and left me in the wilderness. At last I found a boy who was looking after pots, and for twopence he not only led me truly, but enlightened me largely as to this part of the world. He showed me where the great Shebison was to be, and how all the roads were to be laid out, and even shook his head now twelve years old, as to the solvency of this rum gig. He dismissed me kindly with his salary doubled, at the gate of the great philosopher, and with his finger to his nose gave a parting counsel. Best not go in, young man. The old codger can blow you to bits by turning a handle, and the old cat'll scratch your wig off. But there's a stunning gal. Ah, that's what you're after. I say, young covey, if you're game for a bit of sweetheartin' on the sly, I'll show you the very nick for it. He pointed to a gate between two old trees and overhung with ivy. How does I know? He said, anticipating briskly any doubt on my part. So help me taters, it's the only place round here as I never took a pot of beer to. Anxious as I was, I smiled a little at this criterion for a trysting place and then did my utmost to fix in mind the bearings of this strange neighbourhood. Although I knew the busy parts of London well enough, on the vast spread of outskirts I knew little, except the ups and downs of the great roads through them, and here and there a long lookout from the top of Notting Hill, or any other little eminence. Even so I had only lost my eyes in a mighty maze of things to come, and felt a deep wonder of pity for the builders, who were running up houses they could never fill. The part I was now exploring lay between two great western roads, and was therefore to me an unknown land. But I felt pretty sure that the house now before me had been quite lately a mere country mansion, with grounds not overlooked, and even meadows of its own, where cows might find it needful to low to one another, and a horse might go a long way to find a gate to scratch against. Even now there was a cattle-pond, the dregs of better days, near the gate that led up from the brickfields, and half a dozen ancient Scotch firs leaned in a whispering attitude towards one another. Perhaps they alone were left of a goodly group, trembling at every axe that passed. The house itself was long, low, and red, and full of little windows upon whose sills a straggling illix leaned its elbows here and there and sparrows held a lively chivy. There was not a flower in the beds in front, and the box-edging of the walks was as high and broad as a wheelbarrow. Two large cedars, one at either corner of the sodden grass-plot, looked like mighty pencils placed to mark the extent of the building, descrying no one except an ancient dog of mighty stature, and of some race unknown to me, who came up in a friendly manner, 
I summoned all my courage with good manners at the back of it, and pulled a great bell-handle hanging, like a butcher's steel-yard, between two mossy piers of stone. There was no sound of any bell inside, and I was counting the time for another pull, when the door was open some few inches, and sharp black eyes peered out at me. "'Subscription Bible? No, thank you, young man. Cook was put into county court last time.' I did not know what she meant until I saw that she was glancing at the poor portfolio of my own make, which held my unpretentious drawing. "'I am not come for any subscription,' I said, drawing back from the door as she seemed to suspect that I would try to push it open. "'I have the pleasure of knowing Captain Fairthorne, and I wish to see him.' "'Don't think you can,' she answered sharply. "'But if you will tell me what your business is, I will ask the mistress about it.' You may come in and wait here while I go to her. Scrape your boots first, and don't bring in any clay. This did not sound very gracious, but I obeyed her orders with my best smile, and producing two very fine pears, I laid them on the black marble chimney-piece of the hall. Her sallow face almost relaxed to a smile. Young man from the country? Well, take a chair a minute while I go and ask for orders about you. With these words she hastened up an old oak staircase and left me at leisure to look about. The hall was a large but not lofty chamber, panelled with some dark wood and hung with several grimy paintings, two doors at either end from it, as well as the main staircase in the middle and a narrow stone passage at one corner. The fireplace was large but looked as if it had more to do with frost than fire, and the day being chilly and very damp, with an east wind crawling along the ground, I began to shiver, for my feet were wet from the wilderness of clay I had waded through, for presently the sound of loud voices caught my ear and filled me with hot interest. One of the doors at the further end was not quite closed, and the room beyond resounded with some contention. "'What a fool you are to make such a fuss!' one feminine voice was exclaiming. "'Oh, don't reason with her!' cried another. "'The poor stoop isn't worth it!' A thing is settled, and so what is the use of talking? How glad I shall be to see the last of her wicked temper and perpetual sulks! And I am sure you will be the same, Jerry. Nothing surprises me so much as Mamma's wonderful patience with her. Why, she hasn't boxed her ears since Saturday. It isn't only that, replied the first. But Frizzy, consider the indulgences she has had. A candle to go to bed with almost every night, and a sardine, positively one of our sardines, for her dinner, the day before yesterday. Why, she'll want to be dining with us next thing. The more she is petted, the worse she gets. Now don't you aspire to dine with us, you dear, you darling, don't you now? I'm sure I never do, replied a gentle voice, silvery even now, though quivering with tears. I would rather have bread and water by myself in peace than be scolded and sneered at and grudged every mouthful. What have I done to deserve it all? I told you what would come of reasoning with her, said the one who had been called Frizzy, probably Miss Euphrasia Bullrag. It simply makes her outrageous, Jerry, ever since she came back from Sunbury. There has simply been no living with her, and she looks upon us as her enemies— because we are resolved that she shall do what is best for her. Lady Hotchpot, what can sound better? And then she can eat and drink all day long, which seems to be all she cares for. That's a little mistake of yours, answered Miss Jerry or Geraldine. 
I know her tricks even better than you do. She cares for something, or somebody, some clodhopper or chawbacon, down in that delightful village. Why you can't say Sunbury in the most innocent manner without her blushing furiously? But she's so cunning, I can't get out of her who the beloved chawbacon is. Come now, Kitty, make a clean breast of it. I believe it's the fellow that bets down there, and lives by having families of horses. Sir Cumberlay told me all about him, and had a rare laugh. You should have seen him laugh when I said that our Kitty was smitten. Well, I hope she had a little more principle than that, and you'd think the butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. Butter never gets a chance, I heard my darling say and knew by her voice that the sweetest temper in the world was roused at last. Your mother never lets it go into my mouth, while you have it thicker than your bread almost. But I'll thank you to enjoy among yourselves, or with any old rake you may fawn upon, your low and most ignorant gossip about me. You had better not strike me. Your mother may, but I will not take it from either of you, nor from both together. I could scarcely contain myself, I assure you. And if the young tyrants had fallen upon her, I must have got into a nice position— in the old but not the new sense of nice, that of bodily conflict with women. Luckily, however, these were cowards as behooved such creatures, and I verily believe that my angel, if driven, as no angel should be, into a free fight, would have made a bad record of both of them. I was hovering, as it were, upon my legs, burning to dash into the room, yet shuddering at the strange intrusion, when Miss Fairthorne came out very quietly, and holding her handkerchief to her streaming eyes, the door was banged behind her as if by a kick, and a loud contemptuous laugh came through it. What I did is a great deal more than I can tell, for I must have been carried far beyond myself by pity, indignation, and ardent love. Oh, don't, said Kitty as I stood before her, almost before she could have used her eyes, being overcome with weeping, but the glance she gave me had told the thing that I cared for most on earth or heaven. And the strangest point was that we felt no surprise at being together in this wondrous way. To me it seemed right that she should fall into my arms, and to her it seemed natural that I should drop from heaven. Oh, don't, said Kitty, but she let me do it. I kissed away her tears, and I cannot tell you whether they gave me more bliss or pain. I stroked her softly nestling hair, as if it all belonged to me and I played with her pretty fingers, putting them one by one between my great things to make the thrilling process last. Then I looked once more into her lovely eyes, the wells of all my life springs now, and lo, their tears were flown, and hope, and woman's faith, and heaven's own love were beaming from their lustrous depth as the light that proves the jewel true. Darling of my life, was all I said, and she only answered, Yes, dear. End of chapter 16